Welcome to the Washed Up Journalist Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. What's your legacy? It's the essence of all that has been handed down to you from previous generations. Keep that legacy alive by passing it along today. Legacy Preservation. We write history. Yours. My guest today on Washed Up Journalist is Dave Hamer, who spent a 40-year career in TV news. As a young photojournalist, Hamer covered the killing spree of Charles Starkweather, who murdered 11 people in Wyoming and Nebraska in 1957 and 58. Over the years, Hamer's assignments took him to 40 states and 10 foreign countries, including two war zones, Vietnam and the First Iraq War. In Vietnam, he became America's first local journalist to file stories from the war zone. Back on home soil, Hamer spent many years as an assistant news director and field producer. Hamer later served as president of the National Press Photographers Association. After retiring from the business in 1991, he concentrated his time on teaching and mentoring students and volunteering for the Red Cross. He lectured annually at the University of Oklahoma for 30 years and taught TV news classes at the University of Nebraska at Omaha for 10 years. Dave Hamer, welcome to Washed Up Journalists. Thank you, John. Glad to be here. Well, let's, um, let's jump right in. I, I intentionally led off with your, the coverage of the Charles Starkweather murder spree in the late 50s. Amazingly, that's been more than 60 years now. A long time ago. How did you, how far along was that story when you first got involved, and what are your memories of how you got involved? I got involved the day after the first, three, first of the three bodies were found in Lincoln. The, uh, the story began when the police re- uh, discovered the bodies of uh, Starkweather's girlfriend's mother, baby sister, and his stepfather. Uh, they, uh, they had been abandoned in the family house, uh, Carol was still staying there. Uh, the the, the uh, initial news came over the UPI wire. Uh, late on in the evening, we got it on the local news. And the next morning, I headed off for Lincoln to uh, cover, not having any idea of what was to follow. Uh, nine murders in, I believe it was four days, if I remember correctly. Uh, the uh, story was uh, just never-ending. And... Uh, I have to say that there was an element of terror involved in that story because no one knew where Charlie was. He was at large. He stole two cars to uh, cover himself. And uh, Lincoln in particular, as well as Omaha and a lot of other communities, was uh, sealed up. People were in their homes, doors locked, windows closed. It was really a uh, frightening time. Uh, I I remember two little sidebars. I was at the sheriff's office in Lincoln after a rumor had gone out that the sheriff was soliciting uh, volunteers for uh, tracking Charlie down. And uh, I was astounded to walk in and find the offices crowded with people with firearms of all kinds, including a gentleman at a six-shooter and a nicely hand-tooled holster 
and I'm thinking, my God, somebody's going to get hurt. The other vignette that I constantly think of, I photographed a uh, milkman. In those days, of course, the milkman came to your house. This gentleman had his little wire basket with milk bottles, and he's going from house to house, wire basket, milk bottles in one hand, a shotgun in the other. It was that kind of a time. Nobody knew where Charlie was. It was very scary. The um, uh, same day that I got on the story uh, was when they discovered the, uh, the body of the elderly farmer, Mr. Meyer. I was there at the house covering that, and uh, a, a gentleman from down the road come running up looking for the sheriff. I said, what's going on? And he says, we just found two bodies in the schoolhouse cellar, storm cellar. And that, of course, was Robert Jensen and Carol King, the teenagers. He, he took their car. The next day, uh, I'm back in Lincoln, and uh, I'm just arriving in town, and I hear on, on the radio that they found three more bodies. This was the uh, C. Lauer Ward family. Uh, he and his wife with their maid all had been uh, slaughtered by Charlie. And he took their car, and he was gone. Of course, he turned up in Wyoming the next day, and that's where he was captured after he killed another person, a traveling salesman who had stopped alongside the road. Interestingly enough, Charlie, uh, uh, not really the desperado that we think of, he was uh, pursued in his stolen car, and a sheriff was firing at him. He took out the rear window, and some of the glass hit Charlie on the ear, and he bled, and he gave up. He did, when it came down to it, he didn't, he didn't put up much of a fight, really, at none, the end. None whatsoever. He none was only whatsoever. a 19-year-old. I believe 19. And Car Carol Ann was yeah. 14. She's just a little, I mean, a girl. She, yeah. Barely. Yeah. Do, do you um, recall uh, the public sentiment regarding Carol Ann Fugate, um, after they after they they got Charlie, um, both the public sentiment and your own sentiment. What exactly? Because I know over the years there's been speculation about whether or not she pulled the trigger any of those times or not. What's your take on that? That's a great question. I don't know. I have no no idea about that. No no uh, inkling. Uh, but I have to tell you that this story, uh, Carol in particular, is a story that never goes away. Well, we're talking about it right here. Right. Uh, but it never goes away. I think it was about seven years ago. Uh, a TV crew from uh, southern England called on me at my house and wanted to interview me about Charlie. And uh, what they really wanted to know was, Carol, was she involved in the murders or was she a ride-along? And I had to confess that uh, I had no idea other than she had been convicted, she had been sent to the Women's Reformatory. And uh, that was the, uh, the end of the story as far as I was concerned. But it sticks with me that after all those years, there is still a public curiosity about Carol in particular and about Charlie. Uh, as you know, there have been um, books written. A dear friend of mine wrote probably the most definitive book about Carol. There have been uh, movies made. Uh, music composed yeah, right all sorts of things so it again it's a story that never goes away 
How long in the immediate aftermath of, of some of those initial uh, murders, how long before the national media showed up on the scene or did they rely strictly on folks in the field that were local from Nebraska and Wyoming to, to gather the story for them? The wire services, of course, were right on it. Uh, and as I recall, uh, when I got to the, the farmhouse where Mr. Meyer was killed, there was a, a, a photographer there from Life magazine, and I don't remember who else, but there was national press there, and that was only the second day of the discovery of the nine initial bodies. So the national media was on it right from the tops, and it was an international story just because of the magnitude of the, uh, of the murders. Um, and that never stopped either. They stayed with it through the trial, and and for years and years afterwards, uh, Carol was subject to interviews, stories. I covered her, uh, the hearing when she was finally released, I believe in 75, and uh, that was heavily covered by the national media. Did, did you cover, did any media cover his execution in 1959, or did media, were media even allowed to attend that event, if you yes, will? Yes, there were several, several reporters applied to uh, be witnesses, and uh, I knew one of them, and afterwards he said uh, he'd rather not have done it. I would imagine that's the sort of thing that you can't erase from your memory. I think so. I would not want to have a part of it. That was an interesting time in this part of the country, because... I think it was a year or two later that the Clutter family killings happened down in Kansas, which is my neck of the woods where I grew up. So you have this, you know, sleepy little heartland flyover country, and all of a sudden it's getting national press for some horrific acts of violence. Yeah. I mean, yeah, interesting time. Yeah. For a long time afterwards, I would be someplace around the country, and it would come up, where are you from? I'm from Nebraska. And I remember one person in particular said, oh, Starkweather country. Right, right. Yeah. Like there's a, you know, every third guy down the streets of gun toting murderer. Yeah. It never goes away. No, you, you can't erase those things from national consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, let's, let's, um, uh, back up a little bit. Uh, and fact check me on this. You got hired in, in Sioux City, Iowa as a reporter photographer in the late 1950s. How did right. you land that job? And, and maybe backing up even further back, how did a young man growing up in Wayne, Nebraska, first get interested in, in media in general? I just fell into it. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I took a job in the local photo studio because I was interested in photography. And uh, uh, I married, and uh, TV came along, and I bought my wife a black and white, I think, 14-inch TV set. This would have been in 53, and uh, we watched television. And uh, it occurred to me that once in a while something would happen in a way and it might be of interest to, to the folks up in Sioux City. So I would take a picture. I think the first one was when the sales barn burned. <laughs> I took some pictures of it and put them on the bus up to Sioux City and I got $5 and a roll of film, which I thought was pretty interesting. And uh, so we'd watch TV, the news in particular. And one night my wife said, you know, you could do that. So I walked into the station in Sioux City and applied with the stack of 8x10 glossy photographs, <laughs> which were still being used on television in those glossy prints. And they hired me. Uh, I was there for a little over a year. Interestingly enough, I learned that uh, the World Herald was putting a station on the air down here in Omaha, KETV Channel 7. 
So uh, I put in an application. I'm moving up in the big time, you see. And uh, I came down for an interview. And a few days later, I'm doing my thing in, in Sioux City. And my news director came up and he said, what's this BS here about you applying for a job in Omaha, Nebraska? Well, he had me, what could I say? I had to admit that I had applied. And he said, well, so have I. Oh, wow. And believe it or not, he got hired, and somehow I got hired. So the two of us came to Omaha. We, uh, we established the uh, news department at Channel 7. There was uh, Austin Schneider, the news director, me, a fellow named Richard Jacoby right out of Northwestern, first job, a uh, lab technician, uh, Maury Shikoini, and uh, we had a sports guy, Bob Wilson. That was the entire staff. Did you have to fight uh, any sort of uphill battle? Just considering you mentioned a colleague who was fresh out of school from Northwestern, which is known for having an excellent journalism program. And you, frankly, were, uh, I, I don't know if self-taught is the right way to phrase it. but I was you, just a guy off the street. Just a guy off the street. <laughs> Did you feel like there was an uphill battle to be fought there in terms of establishing your credentials? Did that take a number of years or, or not so much? No, I don't think I don't think so much. No, uh, it, it was just something I fell into uh, naturally. Uh, I had no experience writing. I had taken a writing course at Wayne State when I was in uh, taking classes there. Uh, other than that, I really had not much interest in writing. But back to Sioux City, about my third or fourth day on the job, I was sent out to cover a house fire. And a gentleman perished in the house fire, and I, I came back with a handful of notes and some film, and I gave it to my news director, and he said, oh, very good. Write me up a minute and a half. Well, gosh, I had never written anything for anybody except maybe a letter to mother, and here I am writing something for the news. So I scribbled out something. I was positively astounded. It went on the air as I wrote it. Hmm. I couldn't believe it. So that was where I became a reporter that day, <laughs> more than just a photographer. Well, you must have been, to a degree, at least a bit of a natural or a quick study. <laughs> well, I had a very good professor at Wayne State. There you go. J.Q. Owen. The J.Q. stood for Judson Quincy. Judson Quincy was just one heck of a guy. Uh, he inspired you to do things. He would... Uh, he never gave me an assignment for writing. He did some of the other students. But he would say, Hamer, write something interesting. Keep it short. Keep it interesting. I want to see short, declarative sentences. And I remember that. That's what I still do. Yeah, keep it simple. Don't overwrite. Now, early in your career, fairly early on, there was another young up-and-coming journalist by the name of Tom Brokaw that you cross paths with, and maybe that's a bit of an understatement. Explain to everybody how you got to know Tom and, and how that came about in the nature of your relationship. Sure. Um, I was working at Channel 3 at that time, KMTV, and uh, Tom came down from uh, Yankton. I believe he was living in Yankton at the time. He had done some television uh, in Sioux City on Channel 4, and he had done some radio he came down and applied for a position here, and uh, our news director, Mark Gatier, spotted talent right off the bat and hired him. Now, you can believe this or not, he was offered $100 a week, and Tom 
held out for 110, and he got it. <laughs> Early day contract negotiations, I suppose. <laughs> yes. And and could you spot that talent as well? Did you sense that this guy was going places, or was it was he just a, a normal everyday journalist in those days? I viewed Tom as a very bright guy who had a. a an immediate grasp of a situation, and he could put it down in a few words, and he could broadcast it. Um, he uh, he volunteered to take voice training. Mm-hmm. You can believe that when he was at Channel Three, which uh, of course was was very good for him. He was a good reporter, he was a good writer, and he was the kind of fellow who, uh, uh, no matter what or where, I'll cover it. Um, of course, in those days, none of us ever turned down any assignment because they were uh, they were a challenge for all of us. Covering the mayor's news conference was a challenge to come up with something a little different from last week, if you can believe that. How about how about the pay for you uh, in those days? Did you um, like compare that to the the average salary in those days of say a high school science teacher or a basketball coach or, a, you know, somebody, a teller at a bank. I mean, was, was it a decent living in those days doing what you did? Uh, it was tough. Tough. Uh, b- barely married, adequate. married with two kids. It was tough. And we were moving, moving from Wayne to Sioux City to Omaha, uh, three different stations in Omaha. By the way, I think I was the first guy ever to work at all three of the local stations at that time. Uh, and that's another story. But, uh, I'll give you an example. When I started in Sioux City, I got $55 a week, a wife and two kids. And uh, and she and the kids were still living in Wayne, so I've had, in essence, I had two residences. I came to Omaha for 110 which was a big step up. And, uh, well, the rest is history. At that point in time, you and Tom Brokaw were equal on the pay grade. That's it's, about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I was his superior because I was the assistant news director, which was really not a big thing. <laughs> so somewhat, somewhat famously, in, in the early 1960s, you covered the war in Vietnam. I believe you went over in 62, correct? That's correct. How did that come about? Um, who, who fired the, I don't want to say who fired the first shot, but how did, how did you get sent over there in the first place? What, what came about there? That came out of the, uh, of the fact that uh, a Nebraskan, Wayne Marchand, a uh, Special Forces sergeant, was the first Nebraskan killed in the Vietnam War. This was before the big buildup. This was 1962. The buildup didn't happen for another three years. So this, this uh, relatively small Special Forces uh, unit was there to train and assist the, the South Vietnamese Army. When the story came over the wire uh, about his death, our anchor at the time, Bob Fuller, picked up on it, and he said, why is a Nebraskan dying off in some foreign country somewhere? What's that all about? He went to the front office, and uh, Owen Sadler, the station manager, agreed that this is something that uh, we should find out about. Uh, So Bob arranged for two of us to... uh, go to Vietnam. We were only there a short time, three weeks, and we filed uh, not every day because we didn't have satellites in those days, but we did uh, Trans-Pacific radio telephone broadcasts, very short. On return, we produced uh, four half-hour documentaries on what we had found. I have to say that we had a complete free, full-run 
access all the time we were there. Uh, when we checked in with the embassy in Saigon, there we were we were numbers four and five of the entire U.S. reporting team in South Vietnam. The New York Times had a person there. AP had one. UPI had one and two guys from a little TV station in Omaha, Nebraska. And that was uh, that stayed that way for some time until the buildup, and then, of course, everybody was there. Uh, we had uh, free reign in the country. We had uh, uh, a little piece of paper from the Department of Defense that said we were cleared to go anywhere we wanted to uh, on military transportation and facilities as available at our own risk and we signed numerous papers everywhere we went that we were there on our own. We were not, no one else was responsible for us. Uh, we covered South Vietnam from the Delta up to the DMZ in the north, all the way over to the Cambodian border. We, had, we relied on military transportation quite a bit. We flew missions with the, uh, uh, with the uh, helicopter forces uh, we were up in the field uh, where uh, Sergeant Marchand had been killed. We were able to uh, speak with uh, his uh, co-people co up there, his, his uh, commanding officer and so on. Uh, for much of uh, our travel outside of Saigon to the west and the south, we had to rely on our own, our own transportation, which amounted to a 1958 Chevrolet station wagon with a Vietnamese driver who also spoke English. And so we had, we had uh, no restrictions. Now later when uh, the forest was built up and uh, the world media was there, uh, restrictions came on very heavy, I understand. I was not there. But I understand there were places you could not go, that nobody would uh, be responsible for putting you in a helicopter, for instance. So we were fortunate to have the free uh, roaming abilities we came up with. And I think that was a major plus. Later in life, covering military affairs was much, much different. Uh, at one point where uh, I had to work with, a, uh, with an escort, and a very nice fellow from Oklahoma, and I called him my keeper, <laughs> who went everywhere with me and said, uh, you know, you can't photograph that. Now you better not talk to this guy. So uh, the differences in uh, what would that be? 30 years, I guess, was immense. The world changed a lot in those 30 years for certain. Indeed it did. It became a smaller place, but... Uh, now, you you were, uh, you were... You said you were the fourth and fifth guys on the ground there in terms of journalists, and this is 1962. Yeah. You were there three weeks. You, you get back. You, you told that story to the people of Nebraska in the surrounding region of what happened to this guy that had been killed. Um... Talk to me about those documentaries you alluded to previously and what, um, I gather that was all footage you shot yeah. and brought back. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you put those together. And yeah. yeah, this was all stuff that we covered and we shot. Uh, and we made an effort to cover Vietnam front and back all the way through. We did stories on the local economy. Mm -hmm. We did stories on the rice farmer out in his, his paddy. Uh, we did stories on uh, uh, business people in Saigon, uh, people living out in the huts. Uh, we did a remarkable little story on uh, 
a, uh, I would call it a country school, just like I went to when I was a kid. A uh, little, little thatched hut out in the, in the woods with a teacher and a couple of dozen kids, uh, little kids, who all wanted their picture taken, of course, and we did. But we covered, uh, we covered the country geographically, uh, economically, uh, culturally, uh, as best we could in, in three weeks' time, along with covering the, the conflict. We, uh, as I mentioned, we flew missions, helicopter missions, up uh, in the north of the DMZ and down in the south in the Delta. Um, they were, fortunately for me, without major incident, the best advice I got all the time I was in Vietnam was uh, uh, the first combat helicopter mission I flew. Uh, the, uh, the choppers were already warming up, ready to go on this, on this mission, and I pile on to number six in the group, and the crew chief handed me a, a flak jacket, and I started to put it on, and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you don't wear it, you fold it in half and you sit on it. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange. That the more I thought about it, yeah, that makes sense. I'm up here and they're down there. Yeah. You, I, I, had, I had jotted down, I wanted to ask you about what the public sentiment in the U.S. was about what was happening in Vietnam at the time. My guess is, though, in 62, the public sentiment was probably mostly ignorance. It wasn't on people's radar yet. Is that correct? Nobody knew and nobody cared. It was a far-off place, and uh, not a big deal. It, yeah, an American soldier had been killed there. Yeah, that could happen, but uh, it does, doesn't affect me. I think that was the general attitude at the time, and I have to say that even after we did our four documentaries, I think that attitude held on for a long time because it was a faraway place. Nobody really knew where it was, although we had tried to make it very clear in our documentaries. Uh, and I have to say that there was not a lot of attention paid to uh, our programs. They were well, pro well promoted by the station in prime time, and uh, we did get uh, some feedback, but overall it was uh, uh, not very noticeable as far as the guy on the street was concerned. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, the other day you and I had lunch, and you told me uh, over the course of your 40-year career you had the, the pleasure of covering 10 U.S. presidents um, and you told, and I'm going to have you share a few of those stories, but just as a big picture question, what stands out in terms of the change? Who was the first president you covered and who was the last and what changed in that era in terms of how the, how the media had access to uh, the president? Well, this is going to date me, but I covered uh, Herbert Hoover and that came about because he was dedicating his library in West Branch, Iowa, and he was an old, old man in his eighties. And, uh, I was interested in covering, covering him because he was president when I was born. <laughs> and uh, so I covered uh, Mr. Hoover, uh, Truman, Eisenhower, all the way up to uh, uh, George Bush I. And that was at the, at the time I retired. Uh, there were uh, many instances in those early years when uh, the president would be would come to town or you would go to wherever he was and you'd walk right up to him and say, hi, my name's Dave Hamer, I'm from Omaha. Welcome to Omaha, Mr. President. Uh, there, was, uh, there was security, of course, in depth, but it was not apparent. And uh, a press tag would get you right up to shake hands with the president, which I was fortunate to do with, with several. 
there were uh, interesting incidents tied with the Times. In those days, uh, we were an NBC affiliate, and occasionally NBC would call out KMTV to cover something in this part of the country. Generally, anywhere from Chicago, from Chicago to Denver was our territory. And uh, the President Kennedy was coming out to South Dakota to uh, give an address and, and dedicate the uh, the last of the strike of uh, dams on the Missouri River at uh, Fort Wahi, which is near uh, uh, Pier. NBC called us the night before and asked if we would cover for them. So three of us uh, flew up in the company plane the next morning and uh, went to rent a car, got to have a car to hold the equipment and, and us. And there were no cars available. They were all gone. So we prevailed on the uh, airport manager who said, well, I suppose I could let you have the uh, airport limo, but it'll cost you $100. Well, we were working for NBC, and NBC, everybody knew, stood for nothing but cash. <laughs> so, of course, we took the, took the limo. Uh, we covered the story a few miles away from the airport. And uh, at the end of the president's address, someone came on the PA and said, we ask that everyone stay at place and not leave until the president has toured the power station. Oh my God, we had a four o'clock deadline because we had to feed the film to the Huntley Brinkley Report live uh, in New York. Uh, we did what we had to do. We threw the equipment in the back of our big black Cadillac and we slowly started driving toward the entrance and nobody seemed to pay any attention to us. They were all looking at Mr. Kennedy. Uh, we uh, exited. A couple of National Guardsmen went to present arms. We thought, gee, <laughs> that's kind of neat. So we waved. We headed down the road back to the airport. Every intersection was guarded by a deputy sheriff. We waved and they waved. Went past a little country school. The kids were all out waving little flags. We waved. They waved. I pulled into the airport drive and I happened to look in the rearview mirror and there's a whole string of cars behind us. <laughs> Uh, big black cars with little flags on the fenders. My God Almighty, we are leading the president's caravan. <laughs> well, we, we did what we had to do. We disappeared. And the, fortunately, the crowd at the airport enveloped the president's limo and uh, the Secret Service and everybody was detract, dis distracted by that and we made our escape. We still couldn't leave until uh, he had left. So we, we covered the, uh, photographed the, uh, the uh, rope line where he was uh, shaking hands with the local folks and all that stuff. I've thought about that for many, many years and how that happened, how we pulled it off. The only thing I come up with is that here we were in a big black Cadillac with South Dakota license plates. The Secret Service apparently thought we were local security. The local security saw us in a big black Cadillac, apparently thought we were secret service. I have no other explanation for that, but I, I shudder when I stop to think that you and I might be doing this interview from Leavenworth. You could have been locked up to this day. Well, two <laughs> things strike me there. One, if you're going to rent a car, be sure you get a big black Cadillac that looks like a presidential limousine. And then secondly, that, that could not, that situation... Uh, could not happen today under no, her, no circumstances. It, it was a miracle it happened then. But uh, 
Now, bear in mind, this was in April of 63. The president was killed in, in the November of 63. Security took a great big change in just those few months. I was going to ask you. Tell you that oh, go ahead. Yeah. I always carried a, a little pocket 35 millimeter camera with me so I could snap a picture of Mr. Hoover, for instance, or Mr. Kennedy or anybody else. And uh, the first picture I shot of Mr. Hoover, I shot with my Nikon with a uh, 35 millimeter wide angle lens. The last picture I took of a president was uh, George Bush, George H.W. Bush, which I shot with a 400 millimeter lens. Now that's a long, long way off. I was probably 100 feet away, which was where the press pen was. Mm -hmm. That's as close as I could get. Gives you a rough idea of the security over the years, plus the fact that there were a lot more reporters, photographers, live television covering every move the president makes now, where in those days there was a whole different attitude. Did that, uh, did the security change because of the assassination of JFK, in your opinion? Was I think that so. I think so. Big part. And then the amount of press coverage, would you attribute that to what happened? Watergate? I mean, I mean is that the... Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. different It's a different animal. It's a different, uh, different world. In those days, when the president came to town, we would go to the airport. We'd shoot a little story there and maybe go to wherever he was making an appearance. And that was about it. It never occurred to any of us that we should be filming the touchdown of that airplane. We should be filming the liftoff of that airplane and everything we could in between, just because you never know what's going to happen. As witness uh, JFK, Ronald Reagan, uh, Gerald Ford, others uh, as assassination assassinations and assassination attempts. Uh, it's a sad commentary that, uh, that we have to uh, have that kind of security because I think I was, I was privileged to be able to uh, uh, look the president of the, of the United, United States in the eye and take his picture. And I think everybody ought to have that sort of access. Never happened, of course. Yeah, nowadays you can't. It's, uh, it's, it's just all changed, and, like, and maybe not for the better. I mean, we understand the safety element of it, but it's a shame that we have to go to such lengths to keep people away. Yeah, you know, that's, exactly. That's changed. Yeah. Um, over the years, you did some freelancing for NBC News. Any, any notable stories there stand out? Um, you also did some documentary uh, filmmaking and... Um, I'm award-winning as well. I mean, what stands out of those experiences that, uh, over the years? I worked on uh, two NBC documentaries. I had a very minor role. I was a second cameraman, just picking up whatever the primary cameraman could not get to. Uh, one of those was uh, following the Vietnam War. I believe it was aired in 74 or 75, and it was a, uh, a wrap-up on the war with the question of what's next. And uh, I shot a film on that. Uh, we uh, interviewed the commander-in-chief out at Offutt, in those days Strategic Air Command, uh, for a part of it. Uh, we flew uh, a, uh, a mission with the uh, Looking Glass crew. Looking Glass was a, a C-135 jet 
that was constantly in the air. There were several of them, but there was always one in the air. And if we had been attacked, and if the uh, underground command post had been wiped out and off it, this aircraft would have taken over the uh, disposition of a nuclear weapon, which it always carried. And uh, that was kind of interesting because I was the first civilian uh, non-military ever to fly on one of those, those missions. And uh, that prompted sort of a local flurry afterwards. I understand that everybody wanted to go. And ultimately, uh, the, the good folks out of it just, oh, well, okay, yeah, Hammer did it. Yeah, I guess you can do it too. <laughs> oh, you were, the, you were the trendsetter. Yeah. Mm. Good feeling. Uh, does that ever make you nervous? I mean, boarding that, did that, did you, I'm sure you got a little jolt of electricity through your body or uh, your hair stand on end. I mean, did that ever make you concerned at all or did you just, you were there to do a job and cover it as a news? You know, it's uh, funny. I, th I think about it now and damn, that was something. Uh, really, at the time, I was doing what I was asked to do. Doing your job. Yeah, doing a job. And I was uh, fully enfolded in, 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 in getting this and getting it right and not really thinking about outside of that. But I have to say that many, many times on the stories involving disasters, uh, we did what we had to do to get the story and get it on the air. And then afterwards, over a beer with the other guys, you would start thinking about, wow, that was something. You know, that was horrendous. That was a terrible thing. And uh, that kind of works on you a little bit. But I think, uh, I think the upshot of it is that it probably makes you a better reporter because you realize that you, you have feelings even though you're, you're thought to be exempt from that. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's your job. It's just doing what... Uh, you're, uh, you're supposed to do. Interesting enough, I never really considered my career in television news as being a job. It was not a work-a-day thing. Every morning was different. I walked into the office never knowing what's going to happen, where I'm going to go. One morning, I was working at uh, Channel 6, WWT. I walked into the office, and uh, the assignment editor said, uh, Hamer, is your passport up to date? Sure, always up to date. Okay, you're going to London next week. Okay, no big deal. Okay. I went over on the Concorde, twice the speed of sound. It took the pilgrims, I believe, 58 days to come here from from England. I made it in three hours and 28 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now that was kind of a good feeling. What a neat experience, too. Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. The, um, I'm sitting there. I had my camera with me, of course. I'm sitting there, and the, uh, the hostess came by and said, the captain would like to see you on the flight deck. Thank you. Go up to the flight deck. Oh, she says, bring your camera. Okay. So I've got up to the flight deck, and uh, the captain, Captain Jones, and I've forgotten his first name. I apologize, Captain. I shouldn't remember it. He said, we're about to hit Mac 2. I just thought you'd like to be here. And if you watch that little dial up there, you'll see when we hit it. I said, okay, I, I'm rolling tape. And we hit it. And I was astounded because I didn't feel a thing. I thought there would be a boom or I thought there would be a jolt or something. Right. Nothing. 
just seamless. That's great. Uh, you told me a story the other day over lunch about a, a story you covered, I think late in your career, about a woman who, uh, who had immigrated to the U.S. from Italy, had gone through Ellis Island. I wondered if you could share uh, or retell for our listeners that story that you told me. It just it sounded fascinating, both her story and the way you uh, went about uh, sure, telling sure. it. Sure. That was uh, one of three stories I did that, that I called uh, uh, Great Americans. And uh, this lady had come to uh, this country from Italy when she was nine years old. Uh, I met her, Gary Kerr and I met her when she was in her 80s. And we decided to do her story on coming to America and uh, her life here. And uh, Rose Breesey was her name, delightful lady. And uh, we arranged to take her to Ellis Island and have her go through the steps there, arriving on a ship, putting a foot on the American soil for the first time in her life, and then going through the process at Ellis Island. That was a, a very important part of our story. We also did her life here in Omaha, uh, marrying, growing up, uh, children, the whole thing. But the interesting thing was that we felt we really had to have this Ellis Island uh, approach to the story just because that was so important, plus the fact that my dad came through Ellis Island, plus the fact that my my boss came, boss's dad came through Ellis Island, so it was an easy sell for me to the boss to right. do the story. Uh, there were some problems in, in uh, getting that part of the story done. We uh, we applied to the, uh, the Ellis Island Statue of Liberty Foundation which was raising money at the time to uh, uh, bring Ellis Island back to life as a tourist attraction and to do work on the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it took some, some doing, but we finally got, got through to uh, a person who could say yes or no. And uh, he said, we'd like to have you do this story. We think it would be good. Uh, however, we have to protect ourselves in case something happens when you're on Ellis Island, and we would require a uh, a bond of a million dollars. Wow. Well, that's the biggest budget I ever worked with. <laughs> and uh, passed it through the front office, and, and they said, well, okay, I guess. The whole, th the whole thing was that I looked at it this way, that if we broke something, the station was out a million dollars, and we didn't break anything. <laughs> but uh, we uh, we went to New York. We took took the lady, and we took her great grandson, who was uh, nine, who was ten years old, approximately her age when she came over here, because we wanted we we wanted not to tell the story ourselves, Gary Kerr and myself. We wanted her to tell the story to her great grandson, which she did marvelously. She should have been on television all of her life. And uh, that was uh, that was a real plus for for uh, the story that we did. Uh, that that particular story was one of three, as I mentioned, that we did called Great Americans. The first one in the series was a, a Native American, uh, Crazy Horse. Uh, we called him the last of the warriors because he was literally the the last holdout against white civilization in this part of the country. 
I spent, uh, I, I did a solo on that. It was the only time I ever did a documentary where I did everything, including on camera, which I'm uh, not suited for. But what the hell, I did it anyhow. <laughs> I, I spent uh, about uh, 10 days actually following his footsteps through Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Wyoming, and uh, Montana, ending at Fort Robinson in northwest Nebraska, where he was killed, uh, allegedly trying to escape uh, by a cavalry soldier. Uh, the, the cavalry soldier's name was William Jutless, by the way. The uh, second, of course, was uh, Rose Breesy's story, an immigrant comes to America, becomes a great American. The third story was on uh, a, an Omaha man who had landed on Omaha Beach on D-Day, 1944, and it fought through uh, France and Germany, came home. Roger McCarthy, who was an employee of OPPD at that time. We did the same technique there. We took Roger and his wife uh, first to England, where he had trained for the invasion, and then across the channel to Omaha Beach, where he had uh, landed in the first wave at 6.45 on D-Day, June 6th. 1944, and here again he told the story to his wife. Uh, we uh, we we interviewed Roger great length over here before we left, and Gary and I found out that she was asking more questions than we were because she had never heard any of his stories about his military life, and it was only natural that we take her along. and And this this was a real plus. Worked out very well. I have to say that. Uh, Seldom was I ever moved, but the uh, the end of our story on D-Day, we were in the uh, American Military Cemetery, which is right above Omaha Beach. About ten thousand graves here, by the way. That's a moving experience in its in its own right. We were wrapping up the shoot, uh, packing up the equipment, and uh, a gentleman just wandered up. There was no one else anywhere around, just wandered up and asked me what we were doing. I said we were a documentary team from from the U.S. and that we had brought this gentleman over to uh, go through his experiences. And uh, I just said, would you like to meet him? And this gentleman said, indeed I would. He was a British soldier who had landed on one of the British beaches on D-Day. And uh, he and Roger struck up a, an immediate conversation and uh, in the meantime, I got the camera out, and, and I still had a microphone on Roger, so I was able to record the sound. And uh, they chatted a while. Uh, Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Did you take a pop? No, I didn't get hit. Really something being here, isn't it? Yes, it is. And then the English gentleman said, quite a day, wasn't it? That's moving hearing you tell it to me right now. I can only imagine being there. Yeah, yeah that's um, that's remarkable stuff. Uh, sure. That was the interesting thing about, uh, about any television story, news story, is that I've always maintained, and I used to teach this to the kids, you have to have a finish. Yeah. You, you have an introduction that's given. You have a, the body of the story, but you need something at the end that the viewer will identify with or that the viewer will remember 
Otherwise, you know, it's just a plain old story. Nobody cares. And uh, I can't count the number of times when something ex completely unexpected would happen. Just a few words. And my God, that's my finish right there. There's a lesson in that too. And it's to, um, I don't want to say always be rolling, but be flexible enough. You realized what was happening. You got the camera out. You were lucky enough to have sound still going. Yes. And you knew and your, your instincts told you, this is, I got to get this. There's a good lesson there to just always kind of be observing what's going on beyond yeah. just, we got it, let's get out of here, you know. I used that in the classes I taught at UNO, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you just hit on the, uh, the, the strength of a finish. What other aspects of, of documentary filmmaking um, make, make a documentary compelling? What else do you need to, to put something together, where, whether it's two minutes, eight minutes, 30 minutes, or hours? What, what are the components beside that ending? Wow. Well, that's a big order. I'm not sure I can, <laughs> can tackle that. Um, what do you have to have? I think, I think the first thing is you have to be interested in the story. Uh, you have to really, really want to do this story. We're talking about a full-length documentary now, more, not just a minute or two minutes. Sure. You have to make a commitment that uh, this is the story I'm going to tell, but still being flexible enough that it can change uh, direction and you can change courses along with it and hopefully make it even better than you anticipate. Um, we always always told the new people in the newsroom, uh, it's, it's, you're telling a story as though you're writing a book or you're writing a movie, or you're telling a, a, f a funny story to a friend, you have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, that's pretty basic. That sounds rather trivial, but really that's the essence of it. Your story has to start somewhere. It has to go somewhere, and it has to end somewhere. That's, that's fundamental, but yet easily overlooked if you're not careful. It is. It is. And I'm distressed when I watch television news, particularly on the networks, because... Uh, they, sometimes they don't go anywhere. Uh, pictures uh, simply illustrate what the, uh, uh, the person on camera is talking about, and there's a lot more to it than that. Mm -hmm. We discovered in the early days, we would go out with a, uh, well, very early days, we'd go out with a, with a uh, four by five speed graphic and take a still picture of something or somebody, and that was television news. We moved to the stage where we were shooting film, 16-millimeter black-and-white film, and we discovered that we could do this beginning, middle, end thing, which was a great revelation. We did that for a while, and then somebody said, you know, when you're taking those pictures, there's also sound out there. Something is going on. So we figured out how to take that sound camera off the tripod, put it on the shoulder, and go out and do whatever, an interview or a, a a disaster scene or whatever, but you were capturing that natural sound. And a fellow that I learned a lot from used to say that hearing is part of seeing. And that, damn, that's pretty good. Got to remember that. Absolutely. And it sh this whole thing shows how you evolved, how you kind of kept perfecting your craft, which I think it's so easy in any career to get kind of stale. You get locked into doing things a certain way and you don't really... Uh, ever reach beyond what's comfortable and boy yeah. if, you, if you don't do that you leave a lot on the table in terms of what you could become yeah um, our mutual friend John Prescott has a thing about that he uh, he says that we invented local television news as you say a step at a time 
uh, evolve from this to that, to that, to that. And I think there's probably some truth in that. I really wouldn't want to take credit for it, but, well, yes, I would. Absolutely, yeah. Now, you, I, I want to ask you, how did you get first involved in the National uh, Press Photographers Association? Um, how did that come about, and, and how long was your association with that association? Oh, golly, uh, 40 years, I guess. Uh, I was just, just a member, and uh, uh, the NPPA was primarily a newspaper photographer's organization. There were a few television people. I was one of the few. And somebody somewhere said, well, we ought to have a television committee to promote good television uh, pictures. And uh, I said, hey, I'll do that. Uh, we ended up with uh, with several programs that we, that the association made available to uh, anyone who wanted to uh, apply and pay a small fee. One of the programs was the uh, an annual week long program at uh, the University of uh, Oklahoma. They volunteered some use of their facilities for us, and we would bring in oh, anywhere from maybe fifty to a hundred uh, young, mainly beginning. Uh, news photographers from the television stations and the networks around the country. I got involved in that from the start and uh, ended up lecturing there, uh, I think, for 30, 31 years, I think. And uh, it was a great thing for me, too, because I was uh, in touch with uh, younger people all that time and uh, learning uh, what some of the things they were up against when they were covering stories. And I think it helped me in, in my career, uh, just uh, that association. Plus, it uh, put me in touch with uh, a lot of people, a lot of great people from the networks and from other television stations who had done noteworthy things in the industry and they were an inspiration to me. So it was certainly something that paid off looking back on your career. It was, it was worth that, that time and energy you put into oh, it. Oh, definitely, yes, yes. And I have to give credit to my, my employers, several of them that I worked for over the years. Uh, when I went to WWT, one of my, condition, my conditions was that I would be free to go teach for a week every mm -hmm. April at the university. And Steve, Steve Murphy, bless his soul, uh, said, sure, no problem. That's great. Um, last thing I want to ask you about, uh, kind of lost in all this, you, you raised a son who became an award-winning uh, news producer, photographer in his own right. I wonder if you could just... That's uh, right. Uh, uh, I'm going to let you take credit for that. But no, how, how did that come about? Did you ever try to stop him? Or did you take a little pride in seeing him follow in his father's footsteps? Oh, yeah, I took a lot of pride. Uh, I have to say that uh, he did all this on his own. I was not... Uh, not instrumental in pushing him into doing anything. And uh, I'm very proud of Roger. He's done uh, great stories many places. He holds the Edward R. Murrow Award for uh, visual reporting. Uh, he's uh, gone to a lot of places, done a lot of things. He's been in the business, I think, little around 40 years now, which is the same time length I had. And so between us, we have 80-plus years in the news business, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, he's, uh, he's done everything from uh, street reporting, uh, photography, writing, on air, you name it, he's done it. And uh, 
He's uh, flown in some airplanes I would like to fly in someday. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have a lot in common there. And uh, occasionally we talk about uh, the business, but uh, not too much. Uh, I'm very proud of him. He's, uh, he's a good guy. That's probably, that 80 years might be a father-son tandem, a record. I don't know. We'd, I don't know if we could ever verify that, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty impressive for the both yeah, of you. Yeah. But uh, television was, uh, as I said earlier, was, was never a job as far as I was concerned. I think it's the same with Roger. It's, uh, it's something you really, really enjoy doing. And the great expectation every day when you walk into that office and uh, uh, not knowing what you're going to do, where you're going to go that day. Uh, I would have been a terrible failure working in a bank or doing some uh, exciting work, I'm sure, but not for me. It worked the, out. Uh, the, the only downspot in my whole career was the longest assignment I ever had. And... Uh, I, I think about this and, and time wasted. I walked into work one morning and the news director said, Dave got a little problem. Uh, the six and 10 o'clock producer just quit and he, he's gone. He walked out the door and I'm going to have to have you do the six and 10 o'clock uh, newscast and I write and I produce. Hey, no problem. I can do that. Uh, he said, and he made the point just until we can get somebody. And, uh, okay, it took him nine years before he got somebody. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess I was a willing uh, subject, and, and I stuck with it. But uh, I produced a half-hour cast at 6, another one at 10 o'clock, with a paper bag lunch in between. And uh, the thing about that was that uh, any newsroom runs 24 hours every day, seven days a week. Ours did, too. Holidays, you were there. Uh, birthdays, anniversaries, you were there. The, uh, the down point came on a New Year's Eve, and I can't even remember what year it was. Uh, there was we did the 6 o'clock. There was no new news. Uh, we're sitting there, the, uh, the anchor, Tom Henry, the film editor, Lee Wilson, and myself, sitting there looking at each other. And... Uh, Nothing happening, and I suggested that the guys go get dinner and maybe bring me a hamburger, and they did, and they came back with a box, and they set it down. They took out a sirloin and a baked potato and a nice chocolate dessert. Funny how I remember all this. And a little paper cup with some liquid in it with an olive. Well, I almost cried, and I'm thinking... Uh, Ten minutes ago, I was wondering, what in the hell was I doing in this business? And uh, here I am. And uh, damn, this is a good business. You had good people looking out for you, too. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good one to end on there, too. I want to just pay you a quick compliment. Our mutual friend, uh, John Prescott, said the other day, uh, Dave Hamer is the ultimate gentleman in this business. And, and I think uh, that's 100% true. And uh, several years ago, my, my dear friend Roseanne Shannon mm -hmm. uh, nominated me for the uh, Nebraska Broadcast Hall of Fame, and somehow they voted on it and they gave it to me. I was interviewed on a local radio broadcast, and the, uh, the gentleman said, uh, why have you been, you've been named uh, to the Hall of Fame? That's really something. What, what did you do to accomplish that? And I'm 
mumbling and stumbling, trying to find something very important to say here. And he, he cut in and he said, oh, I know why. It's because you're old and you're still alive. <laughs> and there's a kernel of truth in that, right? Yeah, that's great. Well, you right. did a lot more than that. You earned it the hard way with a lot of those uh, long days and late nights. And it was so. all fun. <laughs> yeah. Dave, thank you so much for your time today. This has been sure. excellent. I appreciate it.